Welcome to the FinTech One-on-One Podcast, episode number 339. This is your host, Peter Renton, chairman and co-founder of Lendit FinTech. Before we get started, I want to talk about the 10th annual Lendit FinTech USA event. We are so excited to be back in the financial capital of the world, New York City, in person on May 25th and 26th. It feels like fintech is on fire right now with so much change happening, and we will be distilling all that for you at New York's biggest fintech event of the year. We have our best lineup of keynote speakers ever with leaders from many of the most successful fintechs and incumbent banks. This is shaping up to be our biggest event ever as sponsorship support is off the charts. You know you need to be there, so find out more and register at lendit.com. Today on the show, I'm delighted to welcome Nick Milanovic. He is the founder of This Week in Fintech. It's a popular newsletter that's been around for a couple of years now. I actually first met Nick when he was back in Funding Circle many, many years ago, right at the start of Lendit. And so we've known each other for quite some time and wanted to get him on the show because you know he's doing interesting work and he's also launching a new fund, which is really interesting what he's doing here. It's something that I have not seen yet in the fintech space. So wanted to get him on to talk all about that, which we do. We also talk about some of the fintech trends he's paying most attention to and where he is taking This Week in Fintech. It was a fascinating episode. Hope you enjoy the show. Welcome to the podcast, Nick. Thank you for having me, Peter. It's good to be on. Yeah, my pleasure. So um, I know you've been around Fintech for a little while, uh, you know, so I'd love to get just some highlights of some of the background that you've had to kick it off. And I know we've known each other for a while now, but got my start in Fintech a little over 10 years ago, was the first hire at Funding Circle and what became the US arm. We were you know, attendees at the first Lendit conference over in New York, and it's been really amazing to watch the space grow so much over the last 10 years. But after joining as the first hire at Funding Circle, was there for five years, heading up strategic partnerships, and then moved over to the early team at Pedal, where we were building a credit card from the ground up in 2017 at a point where credit cards weren't yet really a fintech product category. And I've spent the last two years working on Google Pay, which uh, recently came to a close. And so I'm excited to talk a little bit more about what comes next. Well, maybe before we get into that, let's just talk about, I mean, Google, obviously great company to work for. Everyone's fully aware that they're doing interesting things in, in all kinds of areas of technology, including fintech. Why did you decide to quit Google now and what, what was behind that thinking? And it was more about the opportunities outside of Google than it was about anything to do with Google. So just to give some background, I've been working on um, two products at Google, Google Finance, which is the uh, investment research product for uh, public markets, and Google Pay, which is Google's digital wallet um, and payment method for international mobile digital online payments. You know, these are two fascinating products in their own right. But my real background in fintech was working in earlier stages. You know, I joined Funding Circle as their first hire and then, um, you know, was part of the first seven or eight people over at Pedal. And I think that that's really those first two years is when you have some of the most interesting product growth mm-hmm. um, as you're really figuring out what you want to be when you grow up. 
And so for the last couple of years, I've been writing a newsletter on fintech, much of it focused on new product development and early stage fintech. And that newsletter gave way to an angel investing syndicate about a year and a half ago. And that syndicate is now growing into full-size closed-end early-stage fintech investment fund. It's really that opportunity that I think can be pursued in a unique way. And I think we can do things to kind of push the limits and move things forward for providing more than just financial support to early-stage fintech companies. Right. Well, we're going to dig into that in a little bit. But before we do, maybe just step back and sort of talk about why you decided to start you know, This Week in Fintech, which is your newsletter that's widely read these days, an excellent newsletter. I always make sure to check it out every Friday and Saturday. But um, tell us a little bit about the founding of that newsletter. It was actually an internal newsletter for my team. At Pedal, I realized that there wasn't really a comprehensive, concise source of weekly news to keep on top of what was going on in fintech. And I'd been a longtime Lund Academy reader and really like the coverage and the reporting that your uh, organization puts out. But you'd have a lot of fintech companies making announcements in this huge variety of different channels. Sometimes they just make product announcements on Twitter. Sometimes they'd go out and publish articles with TechCrunch or with Forbes. But as the pace of fintech development picked up, it was very hard to keep tabs on everything going on in the space at once. And so the newsletter started out just for my team as a concise way to summarize everything that happened over the course of a week in fintech because a lot changes in just a week. But then when I started sharing it with a few other people, uh, friends of mine working in fintech, they asked to subscribe and it kind of grew organically from there. Mm-hmm. Okay. And obviously you've gone beyond the newsletter and you've gone global with the newsletter. Why don't you just tell us about the breadth of offerings that you, that you guys have now? Things have changed a lot in fintech over the last two and a half years since I started writing a newsletter. And, you know, the newsletter has changed with it, of course. So the newsletter has a global edition. There are regional editions written by Michael Jenkins in London, Christine Chang in Mexico, uh, focused on Europe and Latin America, respectively. And then Osborne Saldana uh, in Bangalore, who focuses on India and Southeast Asia. We are looking very hard for an Africa editor as well. Um, and the idea there is that there is a lot of regional understanding and nuance in fintech development where it really helps to have somebody who's embedded in those areas to write more cogently on what's going on. And they pick up a lot of things that on the global edition we might miss. In addition to that, we have a great policy issue written by Ben White, who uh, works on policy over at Plaid. We have a series of events, the monthly fintech happy hours, which has since grown into other event formats like dinners, meetups that have had over 6,000 attendees and have taken place in the US and Mexico and the UK and Lagos, Nigeria. And we'll be in a couple other cities this year. And we have job board for early stage fintechs to recruit top tier talent. But I think what's most exciting is that we've been making introductions between fintech founders and capital providers for the last couple of years, putting fintechs in touch with fintech-focused VCs. But now we'll actually be launching our own fund this week for early stage investment in fintech founders, which I think will be just another way of kind of giving back to the community. Okay, yeah, interesting. And I'd love to get your perspective on just, you know, looking at fintech, what are the trends that you're paying closest attention to right now? You know, I don't think I'm going to have uh, many controversial answers here, but I think what um, has been interesting to watch over the course of the last year has been a pivot from traditional rails and infrastructure and financial technology to decentralized rails. Mm -hmm. I think we are very, very, very early in this space. These are companies that, you know, people call uh, mullets, which is short for 
fintech in the front or the user interface, and then decentralized finance in the back. You've been listening to Bankless, right? <laughs> exactly, exactly. <laughs> the, the money movement infrastructure in Rails. And it's interesting because I think that the first era of fintech was figuring out how to build better user products on top of traditional Rails. But traditional Rails, depending on what country you're in, may have been designed for a little bit more analog money movement, which is a really interesting opportunity in India with UPI, in Brazil with PIX, and with other uh, de novo rails that are built to be digital infrastructure for instant money movement at very low costs. So the advent of decentralized finance, I think, has provided for exploration into different ways to move money for lower costs at higher speeds and between different jurisdictions. And there are also interesting products like flash loans that for context, are, are loans where you can instantly post collateral and the loan either happens or doesn't happen based on the success of the bet that you're making um, so that the collateral is never at risk. These kind of exotic products, I think, are only possible with these new types of rails. At the same time, it's very, very, very early. In the US especially, there's no set regulatory framework for approaching the treatment of these kinds of rails and how they move money and what's required out of them. And so I think what you've seen is an explosion of interest, and there will be a consolidation as people start to see a little bit beyond the early promises of decentralized finance, mm -hmm. and as federal financial regulators develop clearer guidance on how these DeFi platforms are treated. You know, one area in particular that's drawn some attention recently is DeFi bank accounts that promise 5% APYs. And yet, in consumers' minds, a bank account is indexed to the thought of FDIC protection of assets at an insurance policy for the first $250,000 of assets held in that account, uh, whereas this is something that's absent in DeFi interest accounts. I think developing an understanding over the next couple of years of how to compliantly grow these types of products to the extent that they benefit consumers while avoiding any kind of consumer harm is going to be really critical to the continued growth and the health of this ecosystem. So that's just kind of one area that I've been paying uh, special attention to recently. And out of the fund, we've actually invested in PaySale, which is providing global cross-border business-to-business payments, and Ponto, which is providing an on- and off-ramp, uh, working with local regulators into different digital currencies. Okay, so let's dig into the fund right now. There's obviously, there's a lot of fintech-focused funds out there. What was the thinking behind launching your fund? That is really the most important question that I asked myself before mm -hmm. deciding to go down this road. So I began uh, exploring and putting things in motion for the fund about six months ago, June of 2021. At the time, there were a lot of early stage fintech funds uh, also launching with emerging managers at the helm. And I know many of these managers and they're people that I deeply respect working in the fintech space. I think they're going to be phenomenal investors. But there's no product that I ever want to work on, including this fund that is effectively just a me too mm -hmm. and is uh, selling a commoditized product into a commoditized space uh, without any core differentiators. As you've seen, the funding environment for fintech has changed dramatically over the last three years. Uh, it's become a very attractive early stage investor category, which I think explains the emergence of a lot of these uh, smaller early stage fintech funds. And, you know, that's had an impact on prices, you know, at what valuation founders are raising and on uh, early stage fintech founders' ability to draw capital to them. So on the capital formation side, there's not much that you can do that really sets yourself apart in the market. 
um, a good founding team in fintech will get a check from a top tier VC in all likelihood, you know, absent the irregularities these days. But what I think does really build on what we've done with the newsletter is the community and the non-financial support aspect here. So maybe let me back up kind of one step and talk a little bit about the genesis of the fund. The newsletter has been running for about two and a half years. And when it started growing in popularity, I had two sets of questions coming in from two different parties. On the one side were early stage founders saying, hey, I love the newsletter and I'd love to get yourself and more strategic angels from the fintech space on board. On the other side were people who'd been working in fintech for a while and said, I'm looking to angel invest more actively. I want to reinvest the proceeds from working in fintech into more exciting early stage companies. And so I uh, launched a uh, fintech angel syndicate about a year and a half ago that was meant to connect this group of people who wanted to invest in early stage fintech companies who bring a lot of fintech experience to the table with founders who are going out and raising their first round. And at about the one year mark, I took a look at what had been going well, what hadn't been going as well. We connected with a lot of great founders who I still talk to week to week and deeply respect. And we'd grown to a great membership in the syndicate of people who had a lot of deep fintech experience, but we weren't able to saturate all the allocation that we were being given. So the fund is really kind of the next step in growth, starting with that syndicate, where the fund is uh, similar to syndicate, mostly backed by individuals. These individuals all have deep fintech experience and expertise. A couple of examples are uh, Anil Agarwal, who started Money 2020 and sold TXV to Google. Shamir Karkal, uh, who was the founder of Simple and sold to BBVA, now is the founder of Scylla. And Stephanie Kirkpatrick, the founder of Orem. So the idea is that with this fund, we really bring a whole community of people who are deeply nuanced and versed in fintech to back early stage founders. So that if you're a founder, you're taking a lead check and you're taking the next largest check from a traditional VC that's going to take board seats, that's going to provide you a lot of the coaching and uh, guidance and advice that you need from a VC who understands that ecosystem. But you can also take a check from our fund as well. And that check brings with it you know, the ability to refer in customers, to refer in new hires, to provide uh, you know, consulting if you're trying to select between two vendors. So we're really trying to use this fund as a way to let the fintech community reinvest in the fintech community directly. Okay, that's really, really interesting. Is this broadly fintech? I know you mentioned a couple of investments in sort of in the DeFi space, but what, what verticals are you focused on or is it completely broad? It'll be about 80% pure fintech and about 20% other bets that include decentralized finance. So I know I kind of went onto a little DeFi tangent there. <laughs> that's okay. Out of the, the 10 investments we've made in the fund so far, it perfectly fits that ratio, um, you know, two are DeFi and eight are FinTech. Um, so we've invested in Koshex, which is a B2B wealth management platform in India. We've invested in Sipple, which is uh, building India's leading buy now, pay later platform. We've invested in Ampla, which is building a revenue-based lending direct to retail businesses that plugs into point of sale systems here in the US. Um, and so you'll kind of continue to see variety of the investments we make that take place in the US, that take place in emerging markets, that are focused on different areas of development in fintech. And so if you're trying to kind of draw a neat circle around, you know, which specific areas of fintech we're diving into, it's a little bit difficult because when you're making these kind of early stage bets, um, you have limited signals available for your decision making. And really the strongest ones that we uh, underwrite are the strength of the early team. Their connection, whether they've worked together before, their background and their subject matter expertise in the space that they're entering, 
their understanding of what solutions have been tried for this problem before and what's differentiating about theirs and the dynamics that lead to growth and success in the space that they're developing it. So we're really making founding team-based bets, um, but very broadly in fintech. And the last thing I'll say is kind of my own philosophy about that. I think that there are a lot of smart investors who have guiding theses and they say, you know, this space or these three spaces are going to be primed for development over the next however many years. And then they go out and they find founders who kind of pattern match to their own kind of preconceived notions of what's interesting in this space. Mm-hmm. My goal here is not to limit the deployment of the fund based on my own thesis about what is and it isn't compelling in fintech. It's to let really, really strong founders come to me and come to us as a fund and say, this is something that I'm competing in every single day. This is a space that, you know, over the course of just, you know, nine months, I've actually become a world expert in because I've had to d- dive so deep into what's working, what's not working. And this is why nobody's tried this before and why what I'm doing is different and why it's, why it's right. If I were to say kind of this is the one narrow avenue that we're going to um, deploy in, in fintech, I would be missing out on a lot of founder conversations from people who have become much smarter than I um, in a lot of really interesting and compelling spaces. Right, right. So then... Is it just you making the decision? I mean, look, when you had the syndicate, I presume that was everyone would go out and talk about different investments, but is there still collaboration or is it you really making the ultimate decision here? I feel like you're zeroing in on all the most important dynamics of what I'm building here. So these are really good questions. Um, and I get a lot of the same questions from our LPs. So it is a closed-end solo GP fund in that I'm the sole general partner of the fund today uh, for Fund One, but the syndicate is still involved. And so the fund invests alongside the syndicate for most of the deals that we're doing. And the reason for that is that the syndicate uh, group really brings in value in, in two different ways. On the one hand, LPs in the fund and people in the angel syndicate are deeply connected in fintech and normally are responsible for most of the referrals um, to founders who are raising who we end up backing. Uh, and the second, and this really gets to the question that you were asking is, uh, the syndicate basically provides uh, last pass um, investment committee for the decisions that we make. So I still discuss all these deals with the angel syndicate that get put in front of us. A lot of the times this group diligence uncovers something that as an individual, I may not have been able to. And it basically acts as a quality check and outsourced investment committee before the fund makes an investment, which isn't to say that the syndicate and the fund are always going to invest one-to-one with each other. There are times that you know I'll make a contrarian bet um, that the syndicate does not make. Um, and fund that out of the fund. Uh, But for the most part, um, it helps me do a quality check on the value of these deals that we're doing. Right, right. That makes sense. So then, you know, when you're doing these deals, you said that you don't get all the allocation you want. I mean, can you give us some sort of sense of, sorry, the other way around, you get too much allocation. What's the size of the typical investment? What are you trying to grow that to? Founders would normally come to us and say, we have $200,000 to $500,000 in angel allocation available, you're bringing a whole group into this. Do you want to take that allocation? And so what I would say, you know, when it was just the syndicate is, sounds great. Let me go back and I'll get you an answer in one to two weeks when we've had time to review as a group and we have a good sense of what everybody wants to invest. Inclusivity is really key attribute of everything that I'm building here. The newsletter is meant to be inclusive. The job board is meant to be inclusive. The events are meant to be inclusive and the syndicate is meant to be inclusive. And what that means is that we have a lot of people who really deeply understand fintech in the syndicate, but are younger in their careers or have less disposable income to fund angel deals with. The syndicate isn't just going out there and targeting people who have you know, 
100, 200, $300,000, they drop into angel investments. So a lot of times people are writing individual checks for $3,000 and $5,000. So the average check size that we cut out of the syndicate over the first year of its life was $59,000. So if you're getting offered two hundred to $500,000 in allocation and coming back after two weeks with you know, a $60,000 check, effectively it felt like we were leaving opportunity on the table. And so the fund is really meant to uh, capitalize on that opportunity and fill the allocation available with really smart founders and really competitive deals. And then the other value that the fund provides back to these founders is I no longer have to say, give me two weeks to figure it out and I'll let you know what the final number looks like. I can tell them on day one, like, it seems like you're building a great company. I have really high conviction in it. If you can circle us in for you know $200,000 of allocation, the syndicate will fill some specified amount and the fund will absorb the remaining capacity. Is your goal then to keep the LPs of the fund and the syndicate separate or is it the opposite? Is your goal to bring them all into the fund? We actually have some overlap between the two. So there are reasons that people would prefer to invest on the deal by deal basis in the syndicate. On my side, I keep the syndicate group extremely tight um, because I've been a participant in other syndicates where the group is too large and it really undermines the ability to have meaningful conversations when you're diligencing these early stage founders. But you'll have people who choose to participate just in the fund because they don't want to be involved in the decision-making process on every single deal. They don't have the bandwidth to pay attention to all the new deals that are coming in front of the group. Um, and they want to have some exposure to deals that they individually may not have invested in. So I have people who are members of the syndicate who aren't that active anymore and end up investing in the fund. And what they said was, you know, you bring deals to the syndicate and I wouldn't um, end up joining the, the diligence conversation and cutting a check. And then six months later, uh, this company is wildly successful. And I think, oh man, why did I miss out on that? So the uh, fund is really a good way to kind of index your exposure to just the top deals that we're doing out of the syndicate. Right. You know, I know that VC funding has, has become a little crazy, although it does seem to be slowing down a little bit. But are you talking about pre-seed type deals? I mean, are you talking about seed deals? Series A's can go up to $100 million these days, it feels like. But um, <laughs> what um, when you say early, what do you mean? Yeah, normally we are going to be focused on pre-seed and seed stage deals. And I mean, to your point, that nomenclature isn't as descriptive now as it was you know, a few years ago because there's such a wild variation in check size. But when you're talking about early stage investment, people normally have a kind of target multiple that they're thinking of and a target risk level that they're thinking of for their investments. So you go into later stage of growth investment, you know, your target multiple is a little bit lower, but you have more line of sight, more predictability and less dispersion of possible outcomes because you have more track record for the company. Mm -hmm. So, you know, coming back to this fund and early stage investing, if the size of the round gets too large or the post-money evaluation of the company gets too large, then the kind of meaningful multiple that you can expect to see on that investment just collapses a little bit. And so just to kind of put numbers around it, if you're making uh, an investment at a billion dollar post-money valuation, the wildest possible outcome for you in terms of success is that maybe that grows to be a $100 billion company and you get a 100x multiple uh, on your money. But in, in most cases, you are probably looking at a multiple that is between 1 and 10 or 1 and 20x. When you go very early stage, there's much higher risk, much lower likelihood of success, but you are focused on your successful bets having a higher multiple at the end of the day. And so this is kind of our circuitous way of saying we really focus in on early checks and early deals at lower valuations and lower round sizes 
in order to preserve the ability to, uh, you know, with the best bets that we make, get those higher multiples. Right, right. I've been talking to founders and and investors over the last couple of months, and it seems like some of the frothiness, and obviously we're having a correction in the stock market, we're having a correction, more than a correction, shall we say, in the crypto space. But are you finding that some of the frothiness that was there at the height of 2021 is, is starting to fade, or do you feel like it's just as frothy now? You know, it's going to be a little bit disappointing, but I think my answer is it's too early to say. Right. Early stage investing is a little bit like a deep space exploration where, you know, you send a rocket off and it's traveling somewhere that takes seven years to get to. The place that the rocket ends up landing is going to look very different in seven years than it did when the rocket took off. If you're an early stage investor, I don't think that the current state of public markets should be as important to your decision making. Uh, as many other factors, strength of the founding team, strength of the product, ability to find paying customers, willingness among customers to pay for this product, because the markets are going to look very different by the time you know your most successful companies are finding exit opportunities. Right. Um, so you can't overcorrect. But you know, a little bit more directly to your question, is the turbulence in crypto prices and in you know public equities going to have a meaningful impact on the you know very quick growth in early stage valuations? I think it's possible. The question is whether you know these price drops become kind of a sustained trough, or whether it's a flash in the pan like we saw after uh, March 2020 with COVID. And I think it would, in some ways, make life easier for early stage founders to set lower targets for themselves to hit, right. rather than chasing the highest possible valuation they can get, um, because it's a little bit like rolling over debt month to month. If you take a really high paper valuation now, you may be able to do that two or three times. But eventually, you run into a growth trap where you've been taking high valuations because they're available to you, but your performance metrics haven't grown into them. And so what you're really doing is making a bet on the continued health of the market. And that's a bet over which you have no control. And so if the market churns, like it may be churning right now, um, you put yourself in a risky position down the line where you may have to take a flat round or a down round. At the same time, a lot of funds have been raising these rainy day war chests where you have... $500 $500 million early stage, you know, preceded seed funds being raised by fintech investors. Even if the signals, you know, in the public markets and crypto are bearish, you still have funders who are kind of sitting on dry powder and feel the need to deploy it. Right. So I, I've got a feeling that we're going to see some persistence in early stage valuations. Right, right. Fair enough. Then, like, how many LPs uh, do you expect to have? And do you have, do you have some sense of how big the fund is going to be, fund one? For fund one, the size of the fund is going to be capped at $10 million. And this will allow me to stay in kind of my lane and core competency of making two hundred to you know $300,000 bets, of working with fintech founders at the very early stages and not feeling pressured to write larger checks or write more checks than is sustainable for a solo GP like me kind of operating on his own. You know, my goal here is that this is going to be successful enough that it merits a fund too, um, at which point, you know, I would love to bring on you know, more people who understand the space and and target a larger fund, but uh, it is going to be quite small for now. So that means you're targeting what, like 40, 50 companies to be in fund one? Exactly. I think it'll be somewhere between 25 and 50 companies with a little bit of capital preserved for follow-on checks. Right, right. Okay. Well, you know, we're almost out of time. Maybe last question. I mean, what... what's your vision here is that like, you've got a lot of things going on. We've talked about the fund in some depth here. What's your vision for this week in fintech? Even though it has grown so much over the last decade, I really think that fintech has an incredible amount of growth potential left ahead of it. And that we're only starting to see that 
for the first time over the last couple of years. You know, early financial products were mostly focused on what was readily visible to consumers. So that was lending, savings, um, investing. But there are so many different areas of finance, uh, many of which are very obscure um, and paper-based and a little bit archaic that can be transformed um, by technology that we've only begun to realize now. So I think the size of the potential pie for fintech is the size of the pie right today for financial services writ large and even bigger when you add in the efficiencies of technology. My goal for this week in fintech, for the fund, for the job board, for the events, is to really provide a built-in community so that people who are operators, people who are investors, people who are founders have a resource and a set of resources they can come to and grasp better what's going on in fintech and what the opportunities are and get connected really quickly to other people of the same passion and have this deep subject matter expertise. Because I think building a fintech company is not like building many tech companies in that it really takes a lot of expertise and experience and industry-specific knowledge that you may not necessarily need if you're building a SaaS product in another field. And so the goal is for this to kind of be a continued resource to accelerate the early stage development and growth you know, of fintech companies and products so that we can get closer to approximating the size of that total financial services pie. Right, right. Well, I'm in a complete agreement. I think fintech is, it's just getting started. I think this decade, we're going to see more change in the last 500 years and uh, it's going to be exciting to, to be a part of it. And I, I wish you all the best, Nick. Thanks for coming on the show. Thank you so much for having me, Peter. You've uh, been a big inspiration for the last decade as you've built uh, Lund Academy and Lundit. And uh, you know, I'm really excited for what the next decade holds. So thanks for making the time. My pleasure. Okay. See ya. Have a good one. You know, talking about the financial services pie there, and I've seen various different things saying that you know, 15% of the economy, some even as high as 20% of the economy, when you look at the world GDP, it's approaching $100 trillion, US dollars equivalent. And so that means we have a financial services industry globally that is possibly tens of trillions, certainly many, many trillions of dollars. And the vast majority of that is in incumbent financial institutions. FinTech is getting just a very small piece of that pie right now. And that's what's going to change. I feel like this decade, you're going to see a lot of that value move into the fintech space. So there will be companies that are just getting started, companies that aren't even started yet, that I think will become large, valuable companies by the end of the decade. And uh, it's going to be fascinating to see. Anyway, on that note, I will sign off. I very much appreciate you listening and I'll catch you next time. Bye. Bye. 